Welcome to Brainstorms, Functional Neuro Rehab for SLPs, presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. This podcast is designed for the adult medical speech-language pathologist. Most of our audience members work in settings such as acute care hospitals, private practice, outpatient hospital clinics, and inpatient rehabilitation hospitals. Each episode has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com and is available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. The content of this course is based on the research and experience of the presenters. The listener is responsible for researching to determine if the information and skills taught are appropriate for their clients, students, or patients. SpeechTherapyPD.com does not necessarily endorse, recommend, or favor the information shared, nor any of the claims, opinions, statements, offers, or services made by the presenter. Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Renee Garrett and I am your SpeechTherapyPD.com podcast host for Brainstorms Functional Neuro Rehab for SLPs. Before we get started tonight, we have a few items to alert you to. Each episode is 60 minutes and will be offered for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. We do have financial and non-financial disclosures tonight. Allison Barcliffe is joining me tonight. Allison Barcliffe works for a large health system and receives pay. She also works as adjunct teaching faculty at Old Dominion University for the Communication Science Disorders Department and the Special Ed Department and receives pay. For the non-financial disclosures, Allison also volunteers with local autism nonprofits such as the Families of Autistic Children in Tidewater, or FACT, the Eliza Hope Foundation, and the Autism Society of Tidewater. My financial disclosures are that I also work for a large health system and receive pay. I also work as adjunct teaching faculty at both Old Dominion University and James Madison University for the Communication Sciences Disorders Department. And I am also working for speechtherapypd.com and receive honorarium, as does Allison, for this podcast. My non-financial disclosures are that I am a previous board member for the Speech-Language Hearing Association of Virginia, including past president, and I am the secretary for the Communication Disorders Foundation of Virginia. So tonight, questions can be written in the chat box or the Q&A box, and the questions will be answered as long as they are on topic throughout the session. And so now, without further ado, I'd like to welcome Allison Barcliffe, and we'll read through her bio, and then we'll get into everything autism tonight. Allison Barcliffe, MSED, CCC, SLP, is a pediatric SLP and team coordinator with Sentara Healthcare in Southeastern Virginia. She manages three pediatric clinics and staff serving three cities for early intervention. Allison has been an SLP for 13 years and specializes in autism. She has worked with autistic people of all ages for 20 years. She is certified in early intervention and ADOS 2 administration in the outpatient clinics. Allison manages both many specialties, including AAC, feeding, sensory regulation, aquatic therapy, and more. Allison is adjunct teaching faculty at Old Dominion University, as mentioned before. So welcome, Allison, and thank you for joining me tonight. 
So this is sort of like a sidetrack, but what are you teaching ODU? What courses are you teaching? So right now in the fall semester, I am teaching for the special education department and I'm teaching basically a class in language intervention strategies for the graduate and undergraduate SPED students. And then I also teach in the communication sciences department. I co-teach the autism class in the summer, which is my love. I love that class. And I'm getting ready to do my second stint as the professor for the undergraduate practicum class. So these are students who are likely to go on to become SLPs or are going to become SLPAs with the school system who are in very good standing with school and have earned the ability to, what's the word, to sign up, (laughs) sign up for the class meets the criteria. And so I'm excited to get started with that in January. Okay. And so just to also be not really off topic, but just to give everybody sort of a background, Allison and I went to graduate school together. We shared a seat next to each other in the clinic, which most of you will recall was both inspiring and super stressful, hectic. And many times like that's where you had your meltdown. (laughs) And that's very (laughs) fun. You know, very bonding. So we go back a ways. And so one of the things I've always said about Allison was that she took me out of my comfort zone because I I always sort of knew that I wanted to work with the adult population. And we shared twins with autism during clinic. So we got to co-treat, we got to single treat, we got to collaborate on the side collaborate in the middle of. And so I just learned so many things that were outside of my sort of regimented idea of what I thought I would be. And so I'm forever grateful for that. And Allison knows this already, but I thought it was worth a share to mention that this is one of the reasons I felt like it was so super important to have her be a guest to share all of her knowledge and wisdom and insight into this great population of neurodiverse people from, you know, throughout the lifespan, because it's it's so important. And there's so many things that I think the general population and even those of us in the profession who maybe don't work with the neurodivergent population aren't aware of, and maybe could be a little bit more in the education realm for our population of patients throughout the lifespan too, because everyone has a person in their family or a neighbor or a person in their community that they know who is neurodivergent. And so it's really important for our communities to be educated and empowered. So one of the things that I wanted to talk about tonight, you know, we think about this transition a lot of times for patients throughout the lifespan. And I think one of the things that we miss often for our neurodivergent group of folks is that there's needs for transitional support beyond education. But then what does that look like? Because it's not just a one size fits all and a questionnaire that we can sort of fill out or fill in the blank for. And so, Allison, what does that look like from a, you know, an educational standpoint? But then also, you know, we talked about this whole social aspect. So there's a long journey here that we could go down. So there's so much to touch on here. And there's some things that I think are really important to say first. And so transition planning in most states, if not federally, but begins at age 14. And even though that's happening in the school system, 
a lot of the time the transition plan is the part of, especially at 14, is the part of the IEP meeting that the parents aren't thinking about yet, right? It's hard to get from one day to the next day sometimes with any kids. <laughs> you know, I have a senior in high school and it just feels like it's all zooming past. And that's without fighting for accommodations and making sure that the goals are being met and strategies are there. So um, I think that it's so important that parents and caregivers and students themselves get very informed and involved about transition as early as possible. A lot of people don't realize that the accommodations of an IEP, they are going to end when school ends, even if the student goes on to further education. And there are lots of options for further education. So you know, the famous phrase that I think everyone knows now is if you know one person with autism, you know one person with autism. And so that means that for every type of person there is, is every type of autistic person there is. So that's autism is the way an autistic person is the lens through which they view the world. And so that's going to be there no matter what else is going on. So we have people that are going to go to four-year colleges and are going to pursue the degrees of their choice. We have people who are going to go to two-year schools or take classes at local community colleges. We have people that will go on to special accommodation programs that certain universities run. You know, I recently, in the past several years, I shouldn't say recently, I guess, but I've very much been amazed at some of the things my former students and patients have gone on to do and learning how many schools out there really have things. And so, the same diagnosis that so many people are given a ceiling when they receive the diagnosis of these are the dreams you need to give up and this is what you need to mourn. But really, our students, our children, our clients, our patients, our adults, they show us who they're going to be and what they're ready for. And we have to figure out how to support them best on their journey. So they may go to a specialized program at the University of Arizona or um, where your son went, the G. George Mason. Oh, George, Mason. George, George Mason. Mason has a great, so that's my word retrieving <laughs> issues is I think of a letter <laughs> and then I can get there. George Mason has a great program. There yeah. are a lot of universities. And then there are technical schools, vocational schools. There are apprenticeships. There are day support programs. There are all for the whole spectrum. There is a spectrum of what's going to happen after school. But it doesn't just happen. And so after the IEP ends, if we're going to be at a school where we're going to need accommodations, then we need to make sure that we are looking at ADA and we are looking at 504 and seeing what reasonable accommodation. It switches from free and appropriate education to reasonable accommodations. Another thing that, again, I think, like, let me get this out at the beginning because this is one of those major things is when a person turns 18, they become an adult. And so any legal process is going to take a period of time. And depending on the independence level and decision-making level and competence level of an individual to make the major decisions for themselves is going to have to do with what choices we make for them. And so they may be a guardian advocate. Um, that the court appoints. It may be the mm -hmm. parents gaining guardianship. It may and be. And that's a huge, huge one that I think a lot of people who don't necessarily work with this population or this group, they don't know that. Exactly. And then 
the durable power of attorney. So some people think mm -hmm. that if their child is not at a point that they would be deemed not competent to make decisions by the court. And so they think, oh, I won't be able to have guardianship. They don't realize that there's another option and that they can still help with financial and medical decisions. And that durable power of attorney is really important. So talking to a special education lawyer or an attorney who specializes in this transition process, that is who is going to help you figure out that timeline. So doing that earlier is important, even if you're not sure for what you need. And like I can tell you here in Virginia, well, locally in Hampton Roads, our local autism society, they have a resource directory online. And that resource directory has everything from a dentist to a hairdresser to attorneys. And there are nonprofit organizations and there are organizations in every city and in every state where you're going to be able to find out these are the attorneys that do this. And this is who I need to talk to. Your educational team should be helping you through a lot of the process as well, because there are legal issues around it, but there is also the advocacy issues around it. And are we planning for what is important to this person? Are we planning for this person to make the contributions that they wish to make to society and to their life and to their community and to their family. So self-advocacy has become a huge topic with the neurodiversity movement and paradigm. But we have to remember that that, you know, it's not going to stop at a self-advocacy goal to be able to express when you want something to stop happening or when you want something to happen again. We need to continue that because the goal for everybody's autonomy. And how can we get closest to autonomy and closest to what is meaningful and functional for that person? You know, I think of a story I heard. It really, I always think of this story when I think about transition planning, but also when I think about augmentative communication. You know, for years and years, SLPs and and related professionals, we have been the gatekeepers of these things, of AAC and of what happens after school. Now that might be more of the educational team than the SLP. But I think of a woman I heard interviewed who was a non-speaker. She is a non-speaker. And she had, you know, she hadn't been given access to dynamic augmentative communication because it was deemed that she wasn't ready. And at 18 years old, her transition plan was for her to go work, I believe, in like a farm setting, like manual labor, farm, outdoorsy setting. And she did get access to AAC. And it turned out that she didn't have any comorbidities impacting her cognition. And she actually had, you know, now they know that she's got a high IQ and she very quickly became proficient in the AAC and very quickly said, I hate the farm. I hate working with my hands. And they have been preparing me for that for the last four years. And it's not what I want to do. And like the power, not only of, we always talk about the power of voice as SLPs, but the power of voice, but also the power that your voice, so the power to have your voice, but then what you can do with that. And, you know, she was being set up for a life that was not happy for her. And now she's able to actively contribute to those conversations. Yeah, that's amazing and huge because, you know, again, not only are we looking at transitional 
things from, you know, one, and I think that's fair to say across multiple disorders, multiple things that people consider disabilities that maybe once were considered disabling and maybe now not so much with the, like you mentioned, the movement for neurodiversity affirming care is that, you know, we're looking at people who do want autonomy and who have something that they want to contribute and can contribute. And, you know, we've sort of moved away from this institutionalized model of care for a lot of our patients. And I think even, you know, this is relevant for patients that I see that have intellectual disabilities, you know, or even just disabilities in general, like our patients with cerebral palsy and how they move into this transitional support, like I mentioned, and you mentioned the legal things, because again, we sort of assume in the general population that this is our child or we are the legal guardian of this child who has this thing that makes them different or this thing that prevents them from living an autonomous life or an independent life. And so the general population isn't aware of that things like guardianship and durable power of attorney paperwork is so essential and so crucial. And you and I share a mutual friend slash autism buddy that someone I share a birthday with who was a patient of mine when I was a student in my clinical practicum. And his mom was sort of the one that recently in the last couple of years, she's always been very vocal and sharing in the best way possible to advocate and educate those folks who maybe don't know. But that was the first time I really understood and encountered the legal issues that I wasn't aware of just because it's it's not something that I deal with and something that I do in the populations that I serve. And so I kind of want to backtrack a little bit and talk about the whole guardianship piece, because that was really eye-opening and sort of scary for me as a, I'll say an outlier, I don't know what to call it, but like on the outside looking in, I had no idea that biological parents or even parents that are, you know, adoptive, anyone who has custody of their child who's neurodiverse and is transitioning into adulthood would have to apply for guardianship for the long haul, the long term. It blew my mind. I like spent a lot of time figuring it out, looking into it because I just didn't know. And it was really, again, I think the general population just assumes that, oh, well, they gave birth to them or, oh, they adopted them and it's theirs forever. But that's really not how that works. Right. It's really not how that works. And so You know, the durable power of attorney, that allows an adult child to appoint someone, usually their parents, who's going to be able to make financial decisions on their behalf. And then they can also do a medical one. And then there is the actual guardianship, which is when the court is asked to declare somebody legally incompetent. And so this can be very difficult for some parents because they recognize that their child is not ready to be legally independent as an adult, but they had that just like, you know, a lot of diagnostic language is ugly. The language we used to use to describe the characteristics of autism is ugly. And some of the legal language is ugly and incompetent is a legal word, but we don't have legal feelings when we hear the word incompetent. We have real feelings. 
that can be very difficult. So that just the process of understanding that, okay, I want this process because I want to be able to support my child in the way that they need me to. And that can be a process to come to terms with that that's going to be what happens is that we're going to be officially termed incompetent. And so, you know, we should not ignore the emotional difficulty of that part of it because everything about this process feels overwhelming and it feels like you don't have the tools readily available to you, but you do. It's just that everyone's not talking about it all the time and we're not talking about it enough. And We're not talking to our friends who aren't in the same fields or the same position whose children are doing different types of paperwork instead of guardianship paperwork. But that's why, you know, what we're doing here tonight is so important. When we talk about it and we draw attention to it, when we make things more known, we make them more accessible to people. So again, with the guardianship, once that person is deemed incompetent and then the court declares somebody to be their guardian, that is, they have total legal guardianship over that person. And then the other thing that I had mentioned was the guardian advocate. And that's yeah. usually like generally less costly guardianship. And the person doesn't have to be deemed incapacitated, but it is still a way so they, they can have that support and that backup as they navigate the adult life and everything that's going to come with that. And the other legal thing I wanted to point out, which I have said it, but these things can be time sensitive. And once your child is 18, they are 18. And there have been so many times that I've had somebody ask me during their last year of high school. And many of our students, their last year of high school, they're already 21. But because they're a student that it hadn't come up right or in the same way. And so The amount of time and money it takes after they've turned into adulthood is very significant compared to getting ahead of this and doing this earlier on. And then local organizations, like in the Richmond area of Virginia, you have a parent advocacy organization, PTSI. In this area, the Autism Society does it. I'm sure the Autism Society local chapters are doing it all over, but there are meetings, free meetings for families to go to, to learn about these processes in depth and learn the specific steps and how to go. And if you're a professional wanting to know more about it, I would encourage you to attend one of those as well. Lots of them are still virtual and, you know, you really gain a lot of information that I have not had a patient who does not, or a student whose family has not asked for my advice in one realm or another when it comes to transition. So the more we can inform ourselves and our local communities are doing things to educate people. And so helping to get that knowledge out is going to help us, you know, mention that, be a part of that team. And, you know, now I'm in outpatient. I've been in the schools before. Now I'm in outpatient therapy. And Sometimes parents don't even realize that we should all be collaborating to work together towards this. Yeah. yeah and we, I mean, you know that I, we have a pediatric clinic where I'm at. And of course, I work on the adult side, but our pediatric team lead, who unfortunately has moved on to a different pasture, I won't say greener because I miss her terribly. And so, <laughs> but she did a wonderful job engaging the parents and kind of, you know, we had interdisciplinary meetings. And so I've sort of just wanted to learn a little bit more and experience some of the 
parents who are just like, oh my gosh, there's such great resources because a lot of the parents in our region are like, go get it, like do the things and lead all the things and want to make sure that the advocacy is well known and the community support is there. And so, you know, in our local area, and I'm sure, like you mentioned, in in many local areas, there's got to be other parents who are the same mindset of let's make sure that everyone's on the same page and we're all advocating for each other, not just for our kids or our teens or our young adults, but yeah, like everybody else is too. Like, it's like they're bringing the herd with them. And it's for me, sort of on the observation deck, it's, it's really cool to watch and hope that this momentum continues and that this community outreach and education is perpetuated because it is so important. So. Well, and that community aspect is so important, but there's something else really critical that I can pull out of what you said, that even when you have parents that don't know which way to turn, that they, when they don't know how to advocate, when they don't know when the board meetings are, they don't know who to go. What they do know is they know their child and nobody will ever know that child better than they do. No professional, no therapist, no doctor, no job coach. And so as the parent, if we can empower each other and we can empower parents to remember that I'm never, ever going to know more about your child than you do, then we can empower them to have an active part of this transition process, both for the legal aspects and all of the other aspects that are going to matter as part of transition. Because on the other hand, you have parents who think a lot about these legal aspects and they put a lot of time into preparing for it. And what they're not prepared for is how much their child's life just changes overnight. Everything's been about school from early intervention or whenever we got started until 22 years old. Everything has been about school. And if we haven't made a plan for a college program or a vocational program. And for some students, it's like that. For some students, we get with the Department of Rehabilitative Services during our senior year and we do our testing and we figure out what type of work, if it's enclave, small enclave work or independent work for pay or whatever it might be. And we easily transition to the next step with another organization or into a job or into a school. But for other parents, we have this graduation ceremony and things are great. And then it's the next day. And then what? And, you know, we had a patient here who called us at 22 in June, right after graduation and said, I just, I don't know what to do. I'm not sure what to do. And so I have fantastic front office staff who were able to talk the mother through this and help her understand you called the right people and you can have outpatient therapy again. You can have speech and OT. And now the occupation of life and the communication skills we need may look different than they did at seven or eight, because some people do stop outpatient therapy during school and some people do both, but it's an option, you know? And we had another patient who she went right into day support and she did that for a very long time and was doing well. And they had some change in staffing there and her parents and her physician weren't very comfortable and decided to pull her out of that. They really didn't know, you know, now we have a 46 year old woman with older parents 
who has always had either a plan or a program. And now we got him out of this day support and we don't know where to go next. So like I said, good pediatric therapists, they have the competencies to work with a developmentally delayed or an autistic person through any point of life. And so we see patients who we see intellectually disabled, non-speaking adult patients. And then we also see adult patients who have apartments and jobs and who need help with Because that's the other thing is we forget that those autistic people who go and they get nine to fives and, you know, they become, you know, they're experts in their field or whatever they might be doing. But we forget that they may need supports, too, or that an Mm -hmm. autistic person who got all the way to adulthood without a diagnosis or without a lot of supports, that supports can make a big difference in their life. So I always say when I'm talking about transition, I always talk about occupational therapy a lot as well. We forget that occupational therapy got its start in mental health, and we forget that it's the occupation of life, not occupation of fine motor skills and not the occupation of sensory regulation, but anything we need to do in life. How can we stay regulated and how can we best strategize to get through that? And sometimes transitioning from high school to the job force or to college or from college to the job force or from anything to nothing is exactly when we don't know what to do anymore, where our old strategies don't work and we need new strategies. You know, I'm trying to pick out all the best things I want to say because there are endless things I can say about it. But like, what is important to that person? Do they want social things? And what is social for them? Is that playing video games? with somebody else who plays a different video game in the same room? Is that going on a community outing together? Is that joining a sports team together? And so knowing what's valuable to them is going to help with that transition as well and help you figure like, what did they like best? Do they, maybe they can volunteer in some of the things they used to do. And then we forget all the parts of life that we do independently. That's what gives us our autonomy. When we can make a difference in our own life. And so even when things as simple as meal prep, you know, many autistic people are getting to take out food or they're doing microwave meal cooking. And there are, are organizations out there, you know, there's one in North Carolina and Virginia called Easter Seals, and they might be all over, but I've been working with the North Carolina and Virginia people recently. And I love hearing them talk about You know, when they work on cracking eggs, that day they crack 12 eggs so that the next time that they do a recipe with an egg crack, we're not going to get a shell in there because we did 12 eggs last time, you know, and really getting those skills down. And we forget how food and our ability to choose our food and prepare our food, how much that impacts our autonomy, right? So it can be cultural. Uh, Our ability to participate culturally with the food of our community. Uh, You know, this, I learned this the hard way going into feeding therapy, thinking I was going to be working with waffles. And it was a family that it was rice that was important to them, rice and curry, or, you know, whatever flavor I didn't think a two-year-old, them out the window, culturally, that's what mattered for them. That isn't just at two in feeding therapy, that's at 40 in preparing my own food as well. And Being able to make healthy choices and choose the things that you want to put into your body and how your health is going to be related to that, that is something that we take for granted. And we just jump in and do it for them or we, you know, 
or we teach them to rely on things like microwaves and fast food. And there's so much more we can do. And that's just one little area. That's just food prep. When we think about this full spectrum of support areas, it's dressing, money management, bathing, everything. (laughs) Are you taking advantage of our new amazing feature? The certificate tracker. The free CE tracker allows you to keep track of all of your CEUs, whether they are earned with us at speechtherapypd.com or through another provider. Simply upload your certificate to your registered account and you're all set. So come join the fastest growing CE provider, speechtherapypd.com. It's funny you say food because I talk about this with shared decision-making and in the aging class I teach, that's a normal part of aging because when we look at the shared decision-making, that's one of the things that comes up when people are, no matter what the disorder is, if they're in an institutionalized type setting is that they're now being required to wake at a time that maybe isn't of their choosing. Their food is chosen for them. They're being forced to eat at a time that maybe is not what they would choose to do. And so I think that is a perfect example, not only just because, you know, we treat feeding and swallowing disorders, but, you know, our geographic area, almost everything we do socially is centered around eating. (laughs) By by geographic area, I think you mean the whole country. We love to eat, right? We love to eat. Yeah, but, you know, again, culturally, I think that is an overarching concept across cultures is that a lot of family time and a lot of social time is centered around eating. And so I think that's a great and valid point, that autonomy that comes with being able to choose and being able to know how to do a basic prep that, you know, there's a lot of people who never cook. Maybe they can make a sandwich, but it doesn't stop there because this is an ability that, again, could lead into if this is a passion for someone who's neurodivergent, they could lead into a potential career or a paid experience for them. So I think that's a really great and valid point. I know locally, too, a few years ago, we had it was actually in the city I used to live in. They had a group of neurodivergent students who were transitioning into their adulthood who were not independent enough in their skill set and their living arrangements to live independently. But what they were is able to do like a little craft artisan type market. And so it started out as like a little holiday thing with someone who knit, you know, little stockings for Christmas ornaments and someone else who made some baked goods and someone else who did some wood shop type work and built some little trinkets and it turned in jams and jellies and it turned into like a whole little pre-pandemic sort of farmer's market type situation. And it was really, it was really cool in general. (laughs) Really have so much to do with the neurodiverse aspect was just that what they were doing was really cool. I was like, dang, I wish I had some talents like that. Well, you've hit on something really important in the past couple of points you've made, and that is this another part of transition, but that really starts very early. And it's recognizing characteristics of autism as valuable in themselves and using that, not using that, capitalizing on that, recognizing it, right? And so 
I don't use the words obsessed or repetitive, restricted interests, unless I'm working on a DSM checklist. But I don't use those words because I prefer deep special interests. But my favorite word to describe this characteristic of autism, where you have a really strong interest in a specific category or some several specific things, is the word enthusiasm. And I think enthusiasm is the perfect word to describe what it is. Like it's it's not an obsession; it's an enthusiasm. And what if if you have an enthusiasm? Imagine when nurtured the right way, what we can do. So most of you have probably heard, most of you listening have probably heard of Dr. Stephen Shore. And he's an autistic speaker and professor and has done all kinds of, he's of um, very well-known, incredible things. And I love to hear him tell his story. When he was a little boy, he liked to take things apart and put them together like many young autistic children do. They're very interested. That's a common thing that I see, not with everybody, but that real interest in how does this work? And we can say, oh, that's just what he likes to do. We need to focus on X, Y, and Z that the curriculum says is important. Or we can focus on that like his parents did for him. And when he was told, when they were told to send him to an institution, they didn't. And they encouraged his enthusiasm. And when I say that, I don't mean if your kid loves YouTube, let them sit on YouTube all day. But I mean, develop it the way you would any interest with someone. And what he ended up, he got a job at a bike shop. And he learned quickly that the front room and customer service wasn't for him. But he was able to work very successfully in the back, putting the bikes, fixing the bikes. There, Another common favorite, and at least in my experience, is trains. Very easy to let a child just love trains and brush it off as, oh, that's what they're interested. But if someone has this level of interest in something, the possibilities mm-hmm. are endless when we actually capitalize on them. And there is a man today, an autistic man, who works for the New York City subway system who knows every train and every route by heart. He is probably the only man who anyone can stop him and ask him a question and he can answer it without going to check the schedule or check the routes. And that's because his enthusiasm was nurtured and now he is better at his job than anyone else's. And we are at a point in 2023 and we have been for a while where the world is starting to listen. So if we can encourage these enthusiasms and we can develop these skills and give them the credit and the attention they deserve, instead of trying to prioritize them and weigh them with what we say is important, the ceiling is gone. We lose the ceiling. These companies, the biggest companies in our country, IBM, Google, Amazon, they are actively searching for autistic employees, not out of charity but out of a desire for that skill set and that level Mm -hmm. of interest in the level of skill in their deep interest to to have that's what they're looking for in their workers. And so it's very different than 10 years ago, 20 years ago, where, you know, I say in all different types of conversation about autism, but we're way past autism awareness. We're aware. It's here. It's autism (laughs) acceptance, but also autism appreciation. And that's what we're starting to see. But that's also where we have a lot of opportunity to grow. How can I not be aware of this and not accept that this exists? But how can I appreciate this and this person for exactly who they are? 
and exactly what they can contribute and how can that better serve myself, my company, my community, my country, our greater society. You know, we all have gifts to give and that there's nothing that takes that away from anyone except the environment or the people in their environment. So. Yeah. And, you know, our buddy loves fire station, fire trucks, firefighters. And so the dressing up as a firefighter, the visiting the fire stations, the, you know, he's 22. Is he 23? He's 22 now. And so it's just incredible to see the amount of people who sit in the fire station patches that he collects. And then he does these races and has his firefighter best friend buddy who pushes him and his chair that specialized for doing like the Marine Corps marathon and just all the races that he's been a part of because it does bring awareness, but it also brings this whole, like the firefighters just embrace it across the nation. I mean, he's got patches from all over the States and just to see the people that are like, oh yeah, what it's no skin off my back to support you by sending you a patch or they're grateful that he puts it on his social media. And it's like, hey, today's a great day to have a great day. And this is the patch I got from this firefighter in Chicago or Washington State or whatever it is. And so it's just really meeting him where he's at on his level, which is I knew him as an eight, nine-year-old who was verbal, but also doing things like jumping out of a car when it was moving and his parents had to get a house alarm because he would sneak out at night and just like the things that they went through as a family when he was so young. And now it's like they had been told from an early age, he's never going to talk. He's never going to do anything basically viable. And the things that he is doing are 100% viable for his capabilities and his, like you said, his interests, his things that he loves. And he's been able to sort of be a, I don't want to say advocate, but like bring awareness to firefighting and stuff like that through not his profession, but just his enthusiasm and his ability to engage other people. So I think that's just, just so profound and just makes my heart happy because I've seen him be just so completely different through his still, I mean, he's 22, so he's not old, but it's a markedly yes. different experience from age eight to age 22. So um, absolutely. Just so quickly, I have a student that I worked with from when he was 14 till when he graduated high school. And he had the opportunity to be part of a national research project called Project Search. And so while he was still in school um, as part of his curriculum and with a job coach and a teacher, he learned a certain set of job skills and he really loved it. And he was able to get himself a part-time job at that same location afterwards. And not a specific thing you said, but just while you were talking, I thought about this experience. So my son is working at the camp that I used to work at, which is a camp for autistic individuals, and they do a big kids week. And Big Kids Week is like, I think like ages 16 to 40. (laughs) And (laughs) so I run into this gentleman who I've known a long time and he's at camp as a camper and he's playing his video games and he was telling me about his day. And I said, all right, I'll see you on Monday. And he said, oh no, I got to go back to work. And I just made me so happy. Like he still loves camp and he still has he knows that that is a social recreational opportunity that he wants to participate in, but he also has work. And he, he all like, I just, it made my heart so happy that he 
has able to achieve that because just like you were describing our other friend, you know, as a youngster, he was really struggling with emotional and sensory regulation. And so Mm -hmm. there was a lot of things that were called behaviors that was just him not regulating well. And sometimes when our children are experiencing that, it's hard to see the future. You know, it can be hard to remember that autism, there is no timeline associated with it. So when the time is right, with the right support, skills can be learned, you know, depending on that individual, what is going to be that skill and what is that support going to look like? But yeah, it's just made me think of that. <laughs> so we did have a question in the chat. So it's a little long and it does have a PS. So I'm just going to read the whole thing. Okay. Can you speak more specifically to the options for adults with autism in terms of where they will live and how they will get through the rest of their lives financially once their parents have passed? That's ultimately the biggest picture. As you said, some adults will be able to support themselves financially and work. Yet what about the ones who can't and or whose parents do not have the finances to provide for them after they themselves have died? The father of the adult client I worked with the longest privately was financially very stable, yet he still had to really plan a lot and for a long time, right, to set up so many things to feel as though he won't have to worry as much about it when he's gone. And so then the PS is just the planning and work that the dad had to do on the legal end to ensure that his son's best interest would be as insured as possible was a lot, but he was a very knowledgeable man who knew that all of this planning was something he had to think about and do. Some parents really don't know what to do, as you've mentioned, and or don't have the resources. Yeah, that's I think that's a fantastic question. Yeah, great, great point. So, you know, first to speak to that situation, like here we, we're talking about an educated financially stable man who had the time, the ability, and the cognitive power to do the things he needed to do. And yes, sometimes parents don't know what to do, but sometimes they know what to do and they they don't have the same options to make those decisions. I've worked with families who were financially well-off or stable who were able to set up very long-term care things like prepaying 30 years of a group home or 30 years of this, but everybody doesn't have that option. So it's pretty critical. And I'm glad for this question because I didn't mention this earlier when we were talking about some of the legal process. Pretty critical aspect is going to be supplemental security income, SSI. Mm -hmm. That is going to provide like monthly payments to the individual with the disability and some limited income, but also limited resources come with it as well. So those benefits are based on financial need, but it's the need of that individual, not of the family. I think that may be depending on guardianship. So ask a lawyer to be very sure about anything I'm saying about legal things, check with an attorney. (laughs) But I'm just speaking to my experience and, you know, what I do know about it. But for somebody, if you have SSI, you're going to get automatic eligibility into Medicaid, which is a comprehensive health care. So like whatever your health needs are, you're going to get Medicaid because of that. But it is different than Social Security disability income. So people who work and have paid into Social Security and then become disabled, that is Social Security disability income. But SSI is something you have to apply for. And just like I said, some parents are not prepared for the way it feels to have their child deemed legally incompetent. Some parents are not emotionally prepared for the decision of applying for SSI. There are stigmas around government help 
And there mm-hmm. are also statistics around government help. Like for SSI, for example, I don't know the numbers, but it's something like one out of every, I don't know, 900, 1,000, but people come out of it. So once you get on SSI, you're likely to stay on it. So some parents feel like, well, that's going to put a cap on their life. But if they can benefit from that, that is a way to help make sure that, because that's the biggest fear, right? I have not spoken to a parent whose biggest fear isn't when I die. And it's not something our society teaches parents they should have to think about. So it makes it Mm -hmm. that much more difficult when your family situation does present that you have to deal with it. So, you know, saying talk to a lawyer isn't enough information. So I'm trying to give you all the information, but hopefully one could find an attorney who really can walk them through all of these options and help the family determine what's best for them. And with their financial situation or with their guardianship situation or with the decisions they're making, what is possible legally? You know, I have a fam- a personal familial example of a family member who, it wasn't autism, but has a mental health diagnosis. And the parent did go ahead and set up a special bank account for her group home payment to come out of so that there wouldn't be anything because the other thing is you can know what you're going to do, but if you don't have it in place yet and something unexpectedly happens to you, you still yeah. want it to have. So, you know, I had this parent was able to set up this prepaid rent or this this bank account that it would debit from. But you want to figure out what can you do in your situation and also what opportunities and organizations are in your community to help. You know, I've named several organizations in Virginia and I'll name one other one. Commonwealth Autism is another organization that, yes, they are trying to help with diagnosis. They're trying to help with supporting IEPs, but they're trying to help across the lifespan. So they run some like meetup groups for adults with autism and they run different things like that. And knowing what's available in your community both from these local organizations and from an attorney who specializes in this process, those are going to be the keys to being fully informed of what your individual options are and to try to start to lay it out. A good, you know, Dr. Google, or I guess it's not doctor, like Google, <laughs> Google J- JSD is not, is going to just overwhelm you. So yes, get out there and do your own research, but also Go talk to these experts and they're, you know, talk to people like me, talk to your therapist. If you are the therapist and you know a lot, share it with your coworkers. Don't, Mm -hmm. you know, we don't want our resources in a vacuum. We want them for everybody and we want to be able to get them out there. And I'm sorry, I know so much more about Virginia than everything else, but that's where I live. I will also say that UVA has created a database for the whole state. So I talked about the Autism Society having something for Hampton Roads and this in my local area. UVA has created something for the state. Imagine if we knew in every state which university created a resource directory or which local. So talking to each other. And like I said before, opportunities like this for us to be on here with people from all over the country in our field like this. Get the information out and make it common to talk about it. Even if you don't know all the answers, if you can help a parent understand, like if guardianship becomes a word in their vocabulary and it wasn't before, you've put it on their radar. 
Yeah. So UVA, University of Virginia, just for those of maybe not with Virginia. Well, and another thing is if the patient is on Medicaid or receiving Medicaid services, they should have a caseworker that should have resources within your community, within your state. And if they tell you that they don't, then they need to figure it out because that's their job. So the caseworkers are often great resources and push if you get not much luck with that because they have access to your state's resources and your community's resources. And sometimes it just takes saying this is unacceptable and I need you to do X, Y, Z and figure it out and be an advocate too. Because if you're going to be in that role, then you do have a responsibility to make sure that you're sharing those resources. And, you know, we're all professionals and we don't always know everywhere to go to find those resources. But most of the time, you know, someone who knows someone who knows someone who may have that, or even if it's like I worked in acute care for almost 10 years and I will still, if I have a roadblock, sometimes I'll reach out to the caseworkers at the hospital. If it's a generic question and be like, Hey, this popped up and I'm not sure who the next person is. I need to ask, but I know, you know, so what can you tell me? And I'll be kind of like the email annoying person. And just if you don't respond, I'll just send you, oh, hey, just circling back. La, 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 and, I'm and I'll the person do, but, that needs that. I love the just circle back email. <laughs> Thank you for this reminder. That's my response. <laughs> well, good, because sometimes I feel like I'm being annoying. But at the same time, when you are a patient advocate, as you know, and, and many people who have listened to like webinars and stuff I've done, that has always been patient education and patient advocacy are two huge big things and have been since I was a student, you know, just because of the family experience that I had before I became a clinician when my dad had his stroke and I just didn't feel like we had the answers and the education that we needed and being on the flip side. Now it's my responsibility, but it's also sort of a passion to make sure that our patients are empowered with not only the diagnosis, but what that looks like and how you can get more resources. And if I don't know what the resource is, who can I find that out from and who can I connect you with to make sure that you get the resources that you need to make these good decisions? There's so much to know. So like some autistic people maybe would they may not qualify for SSI because they're working or because eventually they start working so that it's important to know that there's still government things in place for that. And so it's the employee individuals with disabilities program, but that's a program that allows people with disabilities who are working and making too much income for SSI to still receive Medicaid, which means that they get all those things we've just been talking about and that, you know, they have an advocate or they have a caseworker or they have access to these resources and this comprehensive medical plan. So I'm just reading back through the question to make sure we hit everything. So what about the ones who can't and don't have the finances? So yeah, I think we covered that. And one of the things that you and I talked about, you know, were those social supports and those like the recreational resources. So how, like I know in our, like you mentioned, our community, our state, we know how to find those things. But like in other states, is there 
sort of a national database for the recreational stuff, like some of the camps and things like that, that aren't necessarily local to our area, but to other localities, is there another national organization that supports those or puts that word out there for individuals and for their families or their, their colleagues and professionals to find that information? Honestly, not to my knowledge. And that's why, you know, I'm so big on saying like, find out what's going on in your community. Get on social media, join the nonprofit pages and join any community pages where like, you know, some nonprofit organizations will have a community page that's for private members. So get accepted as a private member and then you'll start seeing everything from, you know, 504 information meetings to sensitive Santa events and figure out what else is out there. You know, I believe they're adding gaming to the Olympics or something like that, or to maybe it's to, I could be wrong about that, but like things are gaining, like local rec organizations are adding gaming and they're not saying for our neurodivergent population, they're just saying we have gaming, but Really, like the goal is to draw in other interests and recognize them as social or sporting or recreational. And so it may be that you just need to not, you know, everyone's not so lucky to have an autism resource center, but find who you can find and find out what they know and then go there and find out what those people know and then go to the next place and you build your community. But there is everything from sports to art classes, to all kinds of things. And sometimes it's just finding the right people. Like I have a relationship with the people who run the organizations. So when they may hear from somebody who has a unique request or a unique need, they might know like, well, this basketball team doesn't advertise as being for special needs, but this coach is amazing. So let Mm -hmm. me try to hook them up. So It's so easy to become an island when you're going through any part of this process from diagnosis to acceptance to finding support to fighting for the right things in the IEP to the transition. It's very easy to isolate yourself and to be an island and to not worry about your own mental health. But when we don't do those things and we are part of the community, we get access to resources, we get access to having a community. And we then can support our children so much better, you know? So it's just important to push yourself outside of the box, right? Like one of my moms I worked with, she's a military mama, and she doesn't identify with the identity that a lot of her peers identify with. She's a military wife mama. And she has said, I don't, you know, know how to make friends. I don't know how to meet anyone for my son to play, her son's autistic, for my son to play with, because I don't, it's just her personal preference. I don't like this vibe of these. So she had spent a year and a half, and it was COVID, a year and a half just trying to figure it out herself, her and the internet, and not talking to anybody. And when she finally decided to go ahead and have therapy, then she started talking to her therapist. That therapist then became that branch to the whole community and said, it's okay if military spouse life isn't your life. Like if that's just a fact of your life and not your social life, but for yourself and your child, you're going through something that you didn't expect. Autism affects a family, not a single person. Autism Mm -hmm. affects a whole family. And so 
her OT and her SLP were able to really encourage her and help her. She didn't know how to find it because she's not from here. She's only lived here for a year and a half and it was COVID. And she had decided that for her, she didn't want to be a part of the social opportunities that she were readily available to her. But with that little branch from a therapist, now they're doing things on the weekend. She's finding other mamas who have her sense of humor and have her style. And that is helping her find things for her kid. Because all the mamas that this mama knows have their kids in different things. This one's at a homeschool learning center. This one is in a special program. This one is working at the hotel folding towels. And all of a sudden you start to see the possibilities that when you were busy living in your island and living in maybe your grief or maybe your journey, but if we get too caught up there, we don't see the possibilities and we accidentally impose barriers. So, I mean, that's, we've been saying it for the whole time. I mean, I just realized what time it is. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say for an hour. It's like, oh no, it's an hour and six minutes. <laughs> well, and I think just to kind of wrap up, you know, first, thank you for joining us tonight, Allison. And I just appreciate, well, you already know I appreciate you. I love you so much. But I just appreciate you agreeing to do this because it's so important to sort of cast a wider net. And so I think a really great kind of jump off point is convincing the places that you can start besides the people who may have a shared path with you or maybe like you said a therapist but some really good solid resources are typically our universities and that would be nationwide reaching out and seeing if they do have supports they may have some some community groups some educational groups they may have some references you're not aware of so if you're a a professional or a parent or a combination of the two. I think that's a really great starting point. And even your local organizations, and again, this isn't a commercial for promoting a YMCA or a Boys and Girls Club. It's it's not that. It's just I know that a lot of those places tend to be resources for our communities that is a starting point to connect you to things that may be beneficial for your family and things that you need. So again, just I thank you so much for joining us tonight and for all of your passion and your care and um, enthusiasm and super hard work because I've known you for a long time and I've seen how passionate you were from the time I met you and and just how that's blossomed. And so is there anything that you kind of want to leave us with tonight, remarks or conclusions that you think are important to share? Well, first, I am just as grateful for the opportunity to participate and be asked to do this. It's an honor, and you're doing amazing things by talking about so many important topics with different SLPs and different people who can get that word out about all of the things. And then, you know, I think that my biggest takeaways from tonight are capitalize on the enthusiasm, self-advocacy has to continue. So what supports do we need to give to do that? How can we make this environment less disabling and capitalize on the things that are meaningful to the autistic person in our life? And the legal aspects are real. So consult an attorney. It's not too early if they're 14. Consult an attorney and start to figure out a plan and what are going to be the best options for your family. And make sure that as much as is possible, that that autistic person has a voice in this as well. 
Yeah, I think that that's really good. Yeah, and I feel like we could continue and keep talking. <laughs> I know, we could go for another hour. And thank you, Allison, for joining us tonight. And thank you for everybody who tuned in. And we look forward to seeing you again. Thank you so much. If you have indicated that you are part of the ASHA registry and entered both your ASHA number and a complete address in your account profile prior to the course completion, we will submit earned CEUs to ASHA. Please allow one to two months from the completion date for your CEUs to be reflected on your ASHA transcript. Thank you for joining us at today's podcast. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe.